1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us but they did not really belong to us. For had they, if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. All of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do not know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that, Christ is, that Jesus is Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you... The anointing you receive from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as this anointing teaches you all about things and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it, is, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Thanks, Steve. Uh, keep your Bibles open. There's a lot in those verses. We're going to work our way through them together today. Uh, so you'll be well served if you can follow along. Uh, for the kids, Katie's already said that there's two dangers in this passage. Uh, hopefully you can remember what they are. If not, listen out for them. But also listen for the two solutions or the solutions to each of them that we're going to be seeing from these verses. So there's dangers, which you will have heard of. You might like to write those down. And there's solutions as well, or fixes, uh, and you might like to listen out for those. Now, one of the things uh, that I really do dislike is shopping centres. Uh, not Tasmanian shopping centres, they tend to be fairly small and insignificant, uh, but, you know, your, your mainland shopping centres, your, your, your Chadston and, and, and equivalent, you know, multi-storeys, you know, seven to ten storeys of, of shops, uh, sprawling and confusing and, and crowded. I, I, I loathe them. I can't stand them. Uh, I understand that they're convenient but they're also terribly frustrating because every time I visit one of these sorts of shopping centres the same thing inevitably happens. Uh, I get lost. <laughs> I get lost. I find myself wandering the same corridors over and over again getting more and more frustrated, doing circles, seeing the same shops over and over again and it drives me crazy. Uh, I found out recently that things are actually designed to do that, not to drive you crazy, uh, but to disorient you so you'll spend more time in there. So there's something to think about next time you go into a shopping centre. Uh, they're designed to keep you. But I also learned this week that scientists have discovered that that tendency to walk in circles when you're lost is actually a real thing. It's not just something that happens in cartoons. It's not just a myth. 
uh, it actually is relatively common, not in shopping centres so much, but in the wild. People have a tendency, when they're lost, to find themselves walking in circles. We, we double back. When we've got no visual cues, we wind up going round and round and round, returning aimlessly to the same spot, getting lost. It's true in life and it's true spiritually as well. If we lose sight of where we're heading, we wander and we go in circles. We return to where we've been. And it's the danger, the fear, that John writes this passage to address. There's two dangers here. There's the danger of wandering. There's the danger of being led astray. Both of them are, in essence, returning to things that are not good for us. Two dangers, two problems, but there's one solution that we're going to unpack together. One solution, remain in God. That's what we're going to learn this morning. Now last week we finished off uh, that part of chapter 2 in verses 12 to 14 in which John really grounded us in who we are, in the truths that we have in Jesus. He reminded us that we are forgiven, we have been forgiven. He reminded us that we have come to know God. He reminded us that we have overcome. This is who we are. These are the truths that are evident for every Christian. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to be wary of where we're going. It doesn't mean there's not a danger that we could potentially compromise or give up on what we have in Jesus. And John addresses that in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, if you know your Bible, you might recall a different spot in uh, John's writings, in his Gospel, where he actually says, uh, for God so loved the world. And you might be thinking, well, how does this stick together with that? God so loved the world, do not love the world. How do we bring those things together? I mean, it's, it's a really good question. Well, we bring it together by understanding that John uses that word, uses the word world, in a couple of different ways. One is to refer to the people of the world, you know, the people that fill the world. Uh, that's what John 3.16 is talking about. For God so loved the world, that is, the people. God loved them, we should love them. God sent Jesus to them, we should take Jesus to them. That's how we love the world. But the other way he uses the world is seen here. He uses the word world to refer to the system of the world. That is, the ways of the world, the way of thinking and acting that the world around us does. And it's what he describes for us there in verse 16. Look at verse 16. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. That's what this system of thinking looks like. Uh, it looks like lusting, uh, craving, boasting. As Katie did in the kids' talk, we use the word worldliness, being like the world. A life of wanting things, a life of striving for and living for things, a life, a life of boasting, that is, uh, trusting in things. That's what John says is a worldly life. 
And we're not to love that way of life, that is, live that way. Why? Because John says that way of life, worldliness, is incompatible with God. He says the two cannot coexist, the two cannot mix, they don't come together. Uh, at home we've got some makeup remover, it's, it's not mine, I assume it's Melinda's, um, but I'm aware of its existence in our house. Uh, I don't know what it is, it smells terrible, but what I do know is it comes in a little bottle and if you leave that bottle alone, it separates into two different liquids. It looks quite cool. On the top you get this kind of milky baby blue sort of liquid, at the bottom it's kind of clear and you know, it just separates perfectly into two different liquids. It looks, it looks cool. And I know that our kids love that because our kids compete to find the makeup remover, grab the bottle and shake it as hard as they can to mix those two together because what happens? Well, they come together, don't they? And you get this whole bottle of this kind of milky looking liquid and, and it, looks, it looks like it's mixed. It looks like it's all together. But you know what happens, don't you? You, you put it back in the shelf and you leave it there for a long time and over time it gradually, again, somehow begins to separate. It looked like it was mixed but it never really was. In fact, it can't. And John's saying the same is true for love of world and love of God. You know, sometimes it looks like they can mix. We can, we can see people in the world who uh, obviously love the world and strive for the world and do lots of worldly things and say they love God as well. And it looks like those two things, for a time at least, can come together. It looks like they can mix. But John says no. It doesn't work. They cannot coexist. Eventually, those two things will separate out. Two loves is impossible. One of those loves will win. One will overcome. One will be rejected. You cannot love both the world and God. I mean, after all, not only are they heading in different directions, but they have very different expiry dates as well. That's what John says in verse 17. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. See, what you love will take you with it. Love the world and you will pass away with it. Love God and you will live with him. Now, it might feel like a bit of a familiar message, you know, don't do this. And it's sometimes I, I think we assume that that's kind of what the Christian life is about. Don't do this do this instead and a big long list of what that looks like. And look, there is an element of truth to that but that's not where John leaves us here. What John leaves us with is, is so much more. He says there's heaps more in fact to being a Christian. That's really not what it's about at all. It's primarily not about doing. It's primarily about loving. Christianity at heart is, is, is fundamentally about a relationship. And what John is saying in these verses is we live in a world of loves. We live lives of loves for one thing or for another. And he's asking us, who are you going to love? Will you love the one who knew you before time? Who loved you before anything existed? Who knew your faults and yet forgives them? 
who makes up for your sins, who promises life forever? Or will you love something that just makes you feel good? Something that makes you like those around you? Something that can never love you back? Something that can't change you for better? Something that is destined to end? Now, of course, worldly love is comfortable. We're not denying that. Um, It even looks rational, doesn't it? We look at our friends, we look at our neighbours, we see their worldly loves and they seem quite happy by and large. Sometimes they seem quite successful as well and we think, well, maybe it works. And maybe it does. But not for long. 70, 80, 90 years. And then what? So the love of world brings you death. The love of God dies for your life. The love of world looks like, I want it, I'll have it. It makes me feel good, I'll get it. It makes me feel confident and safe, therefore it must be right. It's entirely ruled by what it sees and hears and wants. The love of God, on the other hand, looks like him. It is for him because he is for me. The two can't mix. So kill one. Uh, One of the old Puritans, uh, John Owen, said this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's a great line. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that's what John's saying here. Be killing that desire for worldly love. Be killing it off or it will be killing you. How do you kill a bad love? With a better one. Love God. Do his will. Live for him. Not only will you enjoy him more, not only will you feel more confident in him, but you'll love the world, things of this world less. A bad love is killed by a better one. There is a danger of wandering. There is a good solution. Love God and remain in him. But what then, if the danger isn't in the world around us, What if it's in here? What if it's other people then who who call themselves Christians? What if they're the danger? I mean, that's a bit scarier, isn't it? That's a bit harder to get your head around. Uh, Remember the situation of the church that John's writing to? Uh, We we talked about it a few times a couple of weeks past. At some time in their recent past, a group in this church has decided uh, to start thinking and then teaching some different things about Jesus. They've been teaching things that are unusual about him and that's not gone very well. And so they'd split from the church. They'd left this church and gone to found their own right church. I don't know what they called it, um, but they said they were correct. They were the ones who were special and all the people who stayed behind in the church that John writes to, they're actually wrong. You know, they're, they're, they're old, they're, 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 not, they're not in the right And so now for the first time, John writes explicitly to address what's happened. Look at verse 18 and 19. 
Dear children, this is the last hour and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Uh, It's a bit confusing some of the way he uses the language there and it also sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Because you get what he's saying. He's saying those people teaching that other stuff, they're antichrists. (laughs) That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Uh, But let's, let's try to understand it. First thing John says is, it's the last hour. Now this is uh, a common idea in in, uh, Jewish thinking and it was imported into Christian thinking in the New Testament as well. Simply what that saying is, it's the last act of history. God is, uh, we're in the last stage, Jesus has ascended, that has ushered in that time. The next thing that's to happen in salvation history is Jesus' return. It's the last days is the phrase Paul uses, the last hour is the phrase John uses. And what was expected in that time was evil figures to rise and oppose God's people. And the evil figure that we read about, say, in Revelation and in uh, 2 Thessalonians is the Antichrist. That was kind of the sign that you were in the last times, that this this figure would arise. But what John is saying is it's not going to be just a person. It seems the Bible suggests that that will happen but it's not just a person, it's actually persons and when we're not waiting for that, that's already come and we're seeing it here in this church. John's saying those antichrists are actually anyone who is opposed to Christ, anyone who teaches even false things about them, him. That's what it takes to be an antichrist, to be a false teacher. How do we know they are wrong? Well, John says the test is actually quite simple. They left. We know they're wrong because they left the church. If you claim to be of Jesus, then you stick with his people. That's what John's saying. If you find you can't, then you're not of Jesus' people. They and their teachings didn't fit, so they left. Therefore, they were never really of him. So what was this horrendous thing that they were saying? Well, we find out in verse 22 and 23. Who is this liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See, this is no minor controversy that's happened in this church. It's not like they're arguing over how or when to baptise or what and, and when you should sing or, or anything like that in a, at all. They are arguing over who Jesus is. These people are denying that Jesus is the Christ. They're denying that he's God's appointed saviour, uh, denying who he is, denying what he's done on the cross. See, this cuts to the very heart of what the church is all about. It's a big deal. And the result is... They don't know the Father. They don't know uh, him and therefore they don't have life in him. So what do Christians do in this situation? If false teachers arise, if if, uh, false ideas about Jesus appear, what do you do in that time? What do you do in that place? 
I think often our first thought is, uh, leave it to an expert. (laughs) There's heaps of people who know far more about this sort of stuff. I'll leave it to them, a a professor, maybe a theologian, at a pinch a pastor, but you know they're pretty second rate. But but someone else, they can sort out false teaching, they can deal with false teachers. I can't, it's not for me. You know, we treat it a bit like computers. You know, what do most of us do when our computer breaks? It's like, I don't know, send it to someone who can fix it or get someone to come to us who can fix it. You know, we we call in the expert because we can't do it ourselves or we're not confident to take it on. Uh, What do the experts say? Well, I read that the IT tech most common fix is turn it off and on again. (laughs) That fixes most problems uh, that they encounter uh, something that anyone could do uh, and that's, that's often what they have to do. And that's John's point here. That's the case he's trying to build. You know, we immediately think, false teaching, too hard for me, leave it to the expert. John says, no. The solution actually is simple. The solution is within your grasp. There's three verses he uses. Uh, look at verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. Look at verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And verse 27. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Simple things. Jesus is the Christ. He is the living Son of God who takes our sins away. You know it. You've heard that many times before. Come back to it. Stick with it. Remain in it. But more. You also have an anointing. John says it's from the Holy One, that is Jesus. What's that anointing that Jesus gives to Christians? It is the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. The instant you came to believe in Jesus, you received the Holy Spirit. He doesn't live in you sometimes, but always. He doesn't live in you by part, but fully. And so John says, because you have the Spirit in you, all of you know the truth. Not just some of you, not just the experts among you, but all of you know the truth because he is God's Spirit. He is the Spirit of truth. You don't need to listen to false experts. You don't need to listen to false teachers because his anointing teaches you about all things. It's it's what Jesus promised in John 16 before he uh, left, before he went to the cross. He said, he, that is the Spirit, will guide you into all truth. Yes, you may not have years and years of theological training. You may not have read hundreds or thousands of books. You may not have written books, but you have the Holy Spirit. So what do you do? Well, John's command there is very simple. Remain in him. Uh, Some translations have abide in him. Uh, And I think that's helpful. It's more than just stay put. (laughs) It's a relational word. It's dwell in God as God's spirit dwells in you. Stay in his truth. Stay in his ways. Stay in his love. Get close to him and stay close to him. 
John says, build your relationship with God. Abide in him, remain in him, dwell in him. That's how you resist false teaching. Now, look, I've heard from a number of you over the years, uh, something along the lines of, but but I don't know anything about theology. I'm I'm not good at that sort of stuff. I don't know how to pick what's right and what's wrong. I'm just not like that. I'll do other stuff. That's, That's for other people. And look, I get it, there are, there are church controversies, there are all sorts of theological disagreements. You don't need to worry about those. I mean, you can if you want to. You can look into them if you like, but you don't have to. But that's different to false teaching. False teaching concerns you. It matters for you. And you have what you need to, to take it on, to address it. You have the truth. It's right there in your hands. You're able to read it and understand it because the spirit of truth lives in you to teach you. It is your job and you have you need to do it. Yes, you have pastors and teachers and elders to help you but that's all that we are. We're helpers. We're not doers to do it for you. We help all of us do this together. That together we as a church stand against false teaching. So be rigorous. Be confident. Test everything you read. Test everything you hear. The, the books you pick up, the podcasts you listen to, the, the websites you read, test them. I've always loved uh, Acts 17, 11, you know, Luke's recording what happened when Paul and uh, co. went on their missionary journey and this is what he says... Uh, The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I mean, isn't that great? That's what I want for our church. That's what I want for you and for us to be examining scripture to see if what I say is true, to see if what you read or what you hear is true. Testing it. Testing it by the word. Remain in God. That's the bottom line. That means get rich in his word, his, his voice speaking to you. Love it. Be near it. Whether it's at home, whether it's in your connect group, whether it's in your Bible reading partnerships or discipleship groups, read the truth, test the lies and have nothing to do with them. You have his truth. You have his spirit. Remain in them. See, lost people circle because they have no visual cues to, to guide them or to lead them. You know, there's nothing for them to look at. There's nothing for them to, to show them their way. John says, we have all the cues we need because we have God. We have a living relationship with him. We are in his love, being built on his word, confirmed by his spirit. Take your lead there not tempted by the world, not confused by false teaching, but on the right path to life forever in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you have graciously and wonderfully given us yourself. You have forgiven our sins in Jesus. You have made us your beloved children. You have promised us your inheritance of glory and life forever. Father, we praise you for your goodness to us. 
how deep your love is. Father, help us not to wander or be led astray from you. Help us to love you more than the world, to treasure you and to live for you and obey you always. Help us to remain in your word and resist the lies around us. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your spirit of truth who lives in us. Father, help us to be rich in him, near him, trusting him and remaining faithful to you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.